the day you were hired, the day you met your spouse, the day you got pregnant, the day your parent died. These are all landmark days in a person's life, days that make a difference. Yet they probably started out like all other days, just a common, ordinary day. At breakfast that morning, you didn't think that something would happen that would change your life forever. And likewise, when the disciples crawled out of bed on that first Easter morning, they had no idea that they were mere minutes from a miracle. It seemed like such an ordinary day, really. Who would have dreamed that this would be the day that would not only alter their lives forever, but transform the whole course of human history? After that first Easter Sunday, in a sense, nothing had changed. Rome still occupied Palestine. Religious authorities still had a bounty on the heads of the disciples. Sin and death and evil still bullied the world. And yet, in another sense, everything had changed. For a new life stream had begun to flow that would cut an enormous channel in the nature of mankind and eventually catch billions of hearts in its undertow. Luke 23 closes at sundown. Jesus is crucified. God is dead. And the world is a hopeless place. But Luke 24 opens just before sunrise. Jesus is now risen. God has conquered death. And hope has been reborn. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. They, of course, were the women who had attended the crucifixion and had escorted the body of Jesus to the tomb. They had gone home for the Sabbath to prepare the spices to complete His burial. And it can't be overestimated how bleak their situation looked. I mean, last they saw the Savior, He was a stiff. He was dead and buried. The once trusted Judas was now a confirmed betrayer. The chief priests and the Pharisees were murderers. Their comrades, the disciples, were cowards. It truly was a sad, sad scene indeed. And if anyone had remained faithful to the cause, it was these women. They had stayed to the inn with Joseph of Arimathea, and they knew exactly where Jesus was buried. And it's fitting that the last to leave the cross were the first to arrive at the tomb. God's intention was to bless these ladies for their faithfulness. Those who are willing to share in the sufferings of Christ should be the first to experience His resurrection power. But when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now keep in mind, this was a heavy stone. In fact, Mark 16 verse 3 tells us that the women, as they came, were talking among themselves who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? They knew they couldn't move it themselves. This stone easily weighed two tons. But when they arrived on the steam, the stone had been rolled away. John's gospel tells us that the stone was, quote, taken away 
The phrase is a translation of the Greek word arrow. The stone caught air. It means to pick up and carry away. Ever hear of underground pressure blowing off the manhole cover? Happens periodically. Well, that's what happened to the stone. The force of the resurrection was so powerful, the stone popped off the tomb like a cork from a champagne bottle. A two-ton stone caught air. Now keep in mind, the stone was not removed to let Jesus out. His resurrection body wasn't subject to the laws of nature. We'll see later Jesus walking through walls. No, the stone in the grave was removed not to let Jesus out, but to let the world in so that they could see that the tomb was empty, that Jesus had risen. Verse 3, Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they weren't left long to ponder what had happened. For it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And those words are what are engraved on the door of the garden tomb in Jerusalem. He is not here, but he is risen. You know, there are famous tombs scattered all around the world. There's Hadrian's tomb in Rome, Lenin's mausoleum, in Red Square, the Taj Mahal in India, Westminster Abbey in London is a graveyard, the Pharaoh's tomb, the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, even the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. But it's interesting to me that the world's most famous tomb, the Garden Tomb, is an empty tomb. I'll never forget my first visit to the Garden Tomb. I took advantage of the opportunity I went in and out of that tomb several times, mind you. I really looked the place over, gave it a thorough inspection. And guess what? There's not a corpse to be found. The most famous tomb in the world is an empty tomb, for Jesus has risen. But an empty tomb is not all that you notice at the garden tomb in Jerusalem. When you look up, as my wife's doing there, All along the top of the wall surrounding the compound is a barbed wire fence. Sharp glass shards are cemented into the top of the wall. And it's a sign of the tension and the conflict and the war that has raged in that area. And when I saw that fencing and those cement shards, the protection around the tomb, it hit me. You know, the folks that live near that tomb, they're familiar with the facts. Many of them probably believe the truth of Jesus' resurrection. After all, they live next door to the proof. They know that Christ has risen, but they've never experienced the risen Christ. And I wonder how many of us here today are in that same boat. We believe that Jesus is alive, but we've never really met Him. Not really. Or if we have... We fail to live in His presence from day to day. Notice again the question the angel asked the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, 
Why are you looking in a graveyard for a man who's alive? Why are you treating a living, breathing human being as if he were dead? And yet, there are churches that are guilty of that every single Sunday. You know, some church services I've attended are more like a memorial to a dead man than they are an invitation to experience and know a man who is alive and well. Imagine visiting the Lincoln Memorial on a February 12th, old Honest Abe's birthday. You know, you would probably find a large crowd and a memorial service in progress. Someone would read from Lincoln's writings certain excerpts from the Emancipation Proclamation or the Gettysburg Address. Speakers would follow who would pull out points from these writings and make application for today. You know, the equality of all men and the importance of our national unity. Someone might even recall and praise Lincoln's accomplishments, how he freed the slaves and preserved the nation. And then we'd all be encouraged to follow his example, to value equality and honesty and courage. But the one thing you'd never do, it would be ludicrous, is you would never be invited to come up forward and meet Abraham Lincoln. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Abe Lincoln. You kidding? That would never happen. And yet a lot of church services are no different. We read the words of Jesus. We apply his teachings. We recall his past accomplishments. We learn from his example. But that's where we stop. No one takes seriously that we can sense and know the risen Savior. Our worship is more a eulogy when it should be an encounter. The message of Christianity is that Jesus is alive. You don't go to a graveyard looking for Jesus. He's out and about. Jesus is at work with us today. Before he ascended, Jesus told his disciples, and his words still ring true, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. When you come to church, don't just sing songs about Him. Sing songs to Him. Make your prayer as much about listening as it is about talking. Follow a living person, not just a wooden example. And don't just work for the Lord. Work with the Lord. He wants to empower your life. You and I, living in the 21st century, can enjoy a relationship with a man who lived on this earth in the 1st century A.D., the carpenter from Nazareth is alive. Well, these two men, they were angels, we learned from other places. They continue to speak to the women at the empty tomb. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. You know, what had sailed over their heads so many times in the past now finally clicks. They remembered. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. The disciples just wrote off the testimony of the women as wild hysteria. 
You know, sadly, Jews in the first century put little stock in a woman's testimony. A woman's word was inadmissible evidence in Jewish court. And yet it amazes me that God trusted these ladies first and foremost. They were the first persons told of Jesus' resurrection. Well, verse 12, But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. I'm sure Peter wanted to believe. He had failed his Lord so miserably. He thought all his hopes were over. But could it be, could it be true that Jesus was alive? Sunday had started with a startling surprise. Now behold, two of them, two disciples of Jesus that is, they were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Emmaus was northwest of Jerusalem. Today it's on the freeway that links Jerusalem with Tel Aviv. But in Jesus' day, it was at the end of a rocky, dusty road. Emmaus is about a three-hour walk from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things that had happened. I mean, these two disciples, surely they had much to talk about. I mean, each miracle that they had witnessed Jesus do had filled their hearts with more excitement. Each teaching they heard had produced a deeper reverence for His wisdom. Each day these men had fallen more in love with their Savior. And like many others, they had been so confident that Jesus was Messiah. Their imaginations had run wild with visions of His future kingdom. They never dreamed it would end this way. Now their hopes are sacked. And these guys, they're now wandering home, confused and disillusioned, in a state of shock, really. All they know for sure is that it's over. They're returning to the hopeless lives they had known before. They're traveling back to Emmaus. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. Now, there are several possibilities for why they didn't recognize Jesus. For one, we know that Jesus bore scars. You remember he showed Thomas the scars in his hands and in his side. But understand, there were facial scars as well from the crucifixion. Isaiah had predicted that the Messiah would be beaten so severely, he wouldn't even be recognized as a man. Those scars, maybe the facial scars, obscured his recognition. This also could have been due to some supernatural screening. Perhaps God threw a veil over the eyes of these disciples until they had fulfilled the prerequisites. Remember, to meet the risen Christ, you have to believe. That was true today, and it was true even then. Well, verse 17, And Jesus said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Man, where have you been? Haven't you watched Fox News? I mean, haven't you seen these things? Haven't you read a paper, man? 
And Jesus, playing a bit coy now, he said to them, what things? And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And the saddest word in their statement, Jesus, who was a prophet. They speak of Jesus in the past tense. Their faith that once was no longer exists. These men were so confused. See, if Jesus was mighty in deed and in word, how did he get trapped and crucified? If he was a prophet, why did God allow him to die? None of this made sense according to their Jewish rationales. And you know, some of you might be just as confused about your circumstances. You too are facing situations that don't make sense based on the assumptions you've made about God. I heard once it was said of Christopher Columbus, when he departed, he didn't know where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know where he was. And when he returned, he didn't know where he'd been. That's pretty confused. Maybe that's how you feel this morning about your situation. You know, the road to Emmaus is a confusing place. God is working, but He's working in ways you didn't expect, in ways in which you're oblivious. Well, verse 21 is sadder still. It says, But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Again, notice that. We were hoping. Apparently their hope had died. See, not only were these men confused intellectually, but they were also crushed emotionally. They felt that Jesus had let them down personally. I mean, all the disciples had staked their future on Jesus, and he had given in without a fight. Why didn't he work a miracle and at least try to escape the cross? Didn't he know that they were depending on him? You can hear that in their voice. They continue. Indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You know, it's as if they're saying, hey, we heard these wild reports, but how can you believe a few hyper-emotional women? See, these men are in dire straits. They're intellectually confused, they're emotionally crushed, and spiritually, they're conquered. They no longer even have hope for a miracle. See, these guys had lost touch with spiritual realities. Life with Jesus had once made them believe of life on a higher plane. But how quickly their experience with heaven had been shattered by the bitter realities of a cruel crucifixion. Hey, let me suggest this morning that the road to Emmaus not only runs those seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, but at some point it cuts through the heart of every single Christian. But there are times when we all become confused intellectually. We don't understand God's purposes. 
we become crushed emotionally. We feel forsaken, like God has let us down. There are even times when we end up conquered spiritually. Hope is gone. We're too tired and weary to even believe. You thought God loved you, but now you're not so sure. You see, the road to Emmaus is a lonely stretch of existence. It winds and winds and seems to go nowhere. But here's an ironic twist. Notice this. On the road to Emmaus, the answer they were looking for was right beside them. Jesus was with them. They didn't see him, but he was with them. And Jesus is with you, friend, on your road to Emmaus. He's faithful to join you. See, our problem is we're blind to his presence. The explanation for their confusion, the balm for their hurt, the flame to reignite their faith, all they needed was within arm's reach. Jesus was with these two discouraged men. They just didn't realize it. Verse 25. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus reveals why their hearts, why their eyes are closed to the truth. Why? They're slow of heart to believe. See, God wants to open our eyes to the risen Christ, but there's a prerequisite. We have to believe. And not just believe, but with our hearts. See, that's the deal. Do you believe with your heart? With heart is the Bible's word for desire and passion and commitment. See, it's a leading term. It implies that something comes next. See, folks can believe intellectually but not act any differently. But when you believe with your heart, everything changes. Faith gets coupled with eagerness. And that's when God opens your eyes, when you believe with your heart. Suddenly, Christ gets revealed to you. You sense His presence, and you're never the same. It's been said, man's knowledge must be understood to be loved, but God's knowledge must be loved to be understood. You have to believe with your heart. It's when you love Jesus, that's when He reveals Himself to you. Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. What a Bible study that was! If only they had had some recording equipment handy. Jesus goes through the Bible with them. He starts in Genesis and he teaches them how the Old Testament speaks of him on every page. Well, then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And since that day, Jesus has never turned down a request for him to abide with anyone. In Revelation 3, verse 20, he says that this is his desire for you. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Today, Jesus is knocking at your heart's door. There was once a billboard on I-10 in Louisiana. You saw it when you approached the Mississippi River. It was a picture of Jesus on the cross, and the caption read, It's your move. And ever since our Lord Jesus died on the cross, the ball has been in our court now. He expects us to open our heart's door and invite him in. Verse 30. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. What was it that finally sparked their faith? Apparently it was something about the way he handled the bread, the way he took the bread and broke the bread. And here's my theory. I believe they finally saw the scars in his hands. As author Philip Yancey writes, Jesus can always prove his identity. No other living person bears the scars of crucifixion. Nobody else. And when they saw his scars, it was undeniable. His scars ignited their faith and in turn opened their eyes. And remember the succession there. The eyes aren't opened until the heart believes. It never happens in reverse. Folks want God to open their eyes, then they'll believe. That's not the way it works. You believe, then God opens your eyes. As Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And while he opened the scriptures to us, don't you love that? A burning heart was the aftermath of being in the presence of Jesus. This was a case of good heartburn. Their passions were stirred. Hope was rekindled. Faith had been reborn. And it happened when Jesus opened up the scriptures. The story's told of a discouraged and defeated John Wesley. He stumbled into a church on Aldersgate Street in London. There he listened to a reading of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. The message of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, captured his imagination and stirred his heart. He wrote later of his experience, My heart was strangely warmed. Note here, the stirrings of revival aren't the result of all-night prayer meetings. No prayer plays a role in revival. Nor is it the result of a unified church, though the church should certainly come together. And a burning heart doesn't come through anointed praise, though we certainly should be worshiping God. No, a burning heart, a heart on fire for God, a lasting passion for Christ occurs when the Scriptures are open and Jesus is proclaimed. Revival comes when, like these two disciples, we go back to the drawing board, we reopen the book, and we seek Jesus on every page. You'll burn with love for the living word when your heart is filled with the written word. And so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. Now, from Emmaus to Jerusalem, it's an uphill climb. So imagine this is at the end of the day. 
Yet they found the energy to return that same day. It's proof of their excitement, their burning heart for Jesus. They wanted to go back and share what they'd learned. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. The men from Emmaus discovered that Jesus had also appeared to Peter. They all were overjoyed. And you wonder what it was like for Peter to face the risen Christ after his crushing defeat. Apparently, Jesus bathed him with grace and showered him with forgiveness. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Jesus just pops in all of a sudden. He appears out of thin air. And what a greeting they received, especially when you consider the last time Jesus saw these guys, he was watching their backsides dodging trees as they fled for their lives through the Garden of Gethsemane. In one sense, I'm sure they were dreading this meeting. What would Jesus do to us? They probably feared his judgment. Instead, he immediately puts them at ease. He says, peace to you. It's grace. Here's what you should never forget. A risen Christ means a second chance. Never forget that. And verse 37 records the reaction. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. They thought Jesus was a ghost, an apparition. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Again, he was identified by his scar. He was no longer flesh and blood, for his blood had been spilt for us. But he was still flesh and bone. His body had changed. It had been transformed. But it was the same body that hung on the cross. And for proof, he showed them his scars. Those undeniable scars. You know, it's always a provocative thought to remember that Jesus still has those scars. When we get to heaven... We're going to see his scars. In fact, I believe that when we've spent the first forever of infinite eternities, Jesus will still have those scars. It's been said, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on our Savior. His scars will serve as an eternal reminder of his great, incredible love for us. When Jesus popped in on the disciples, he proved he was no longer bound by time and space. He could walk through walls, walk through doors. You remember, Paul will speak of resurrection to the Corinthians in saying, this corruptible body must put on incorruption. This mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus' body was transformed with new capabilities. But make no mistake, His resurrected body was the body that was crucified. 
He was still the same Jesus. John Updike once wrote of the resurrection, Jesus rose as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. In other words, his bodily resurrection was crucial. Jesus didn't swap bodies. His one and only body was subjected to death, but then transformed. So in his rising, he could defeat death once and for all, for everyone. And then verse 41, but while they did not believe for joy and mar, apparently their fear was gone, but they still weren't believing what they were seeing. They were pitching themselves, you know, just laughing. They were kind of glad and giddy. But they, they really wasn't registering in their minds what they were seeing. So Jesus offers them further proof. He said to them, have you any food here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Ghosts don't eat fish or honey. But Jesus' resurrection body was able to digest food. It helped the disciples to digest the truth. And then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And notice verse 44. It's an important proof text. For it reveals what Jesus considered to be the inspired canon or measurement of Scripture. And he lists the three divisions in the Hebrew Bible. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And this corresponds to what we have in our Old Testament. Notice Jesus doesn't mention the Apocrypha, or the Talmud, or the Mishnah, or any other Jewish writings. No, Jesus limits the Old Testament to the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the poetical books, the same collection accepted by Jews and Christians today in our Bibles. And from that Bible, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Again, it's a Bible study. And the study of it is what stirs up their faith. Then Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And I love the Greek term translated witnesses. It means part of the evidence. He says, you're part of the evidence of these things. Your life and my life should be part of the evidence. We should be exhibit A, that Jesus is risen. If a lawyer needed to prove that Jesus is alive, could he point to your life as evidence? Are you full of joy? Have changes occurred in your life that can only be explained by a living Savior? Are you walking in His resurrection power? Are you part of the evidence? You should be. Verse 49, behold, what a, what a, it's this amazing promise Jesus makes. He says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem 
until you are endued with power from on high. Now in Numbers 11, Moses chose 70 men to help him oversee Israel and settle disputes among them. But before they began their ministry, he called these men outside the camp. And God took of the spirit that was upon Moses and placed it on these 70 sidekicks. When the Holy Spirit came upon these men, they spoke in prophecies and ecstatic utterances. It was divine communication. Two of the men were actually still in the camp when the Spirit of God came upon them and they began to prophesy. This exposed God's power to the rest of the camp. And this upset Joshua. He thought these holy happenings should be reserved for only those chosen for the task. He wanted Moses to muzzle these prophets. But Moses had the opposite idea. In Numbers 11, verse 29, he prays these words. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Oh, that all God's people, common people, simple people like you and me, oh, that all God's people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Moses longed for the day when all God's children, not just a select few, were endued with power from on high. And Moses' wish became God's promise. This is what Jesus calls the promise of the Father. It was repeated throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 44 verse 3, I will pour my spirit on your descendants. Ezekiel 39 verse 29, for I shall, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. In Joel 2 verse 28, which Peter will quote on the day of Pentecost, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Must have been a Calvary Chapel pastor who said, Promises are like crying babies in the sanctuary. They should be carried out immediately. <laughs> but you know, there are some promises that take time to come of age, to mature. The Father had promised for over a thousand years to bless His people with this power. Now Jesus tells His disciples that the fulfillment is just days away. He wants them to wait in Jerusalem. For there, God will endue them, literally clothe them in supernatural power. And this dynamic is available to us. This is the power that breaks chains and chases fears. The outpouring of God's Spirit produces boundless love and boldness. It turns wimps into witnesses. It turns legalists into lovers. R.A. Torrey once asked if he'd received the second blessing. In other words, not just saved, but filled or baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. Torrey responded, yes, and the third blessing, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the hundreds besides, and I'm looking for a new blessing today. And this should be our attitude. God wants to clothe us in a power far greater than our own. A divine dynamic is available for those of us who believe. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Bethany was east of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all came from Beth Bethany. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. What a moment this must have been. 
like folks at Cape Canaveral watching a NASA liftoff. I mean, Jesus starts rising from the ground into the clouds. He's soaring like a runaway helium-filled balloon. He's ascending back from where he came. I love what author Philip Yancey writes about the ascension of Jesus. He says, when Jesus returned after death to vaporize all doubts among the remnant of believers, he tarried a mere 40 days before vanishing for good. The time between resurrection and ascension was an interlude, nothing more. If Easter Sunday was the most exciting day of the disciples' lives, for Jesus it was probably the day of ascension. He, the Creator, who had descended so far and given up so much, was now heading home. Like a victorious soldier returning across the ocean from a long and bloody war. Like a successful astronaut shedding his spacesuit to gulp in the familiar atmosphere of Earth. Home at last, Jesus was finally going home. His ascension was Jesus' last lap down the home stretch. It had colossal meaning. It was proof that the Father had accepted His sacrifice. It was Jesus stepping into His new role as our high priest and assuming His new post at the Father's right hand. And 2,000 years later, friends, Jesus is still praying and interceding for us, His children. He's still on the job, and we can trust Him and have great confidence in Him. And then verse 52 And they worshipped him. How could they not? And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. I love Augustine's prayer. You ascended before our eyes, and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. The disciples were now confident that through Jesus, through His Spirit, that Jesus would always be with them. You know, it's interesting, Luke began and now ends in the temple. His gospel opened with an aged priest receiving the promise of the Messiah. And it now closes with that promise fulfilled and God's people waiting on another promise. The promise of the Father, the enduing and anointing of the Holy Spirit. That promise becomes the theme of what we could call Second Luke, the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. And we'll tackle that in a few weeks.